Good morning. As the lights come up, make your way to the book of Philemon. Philemon, the least taught, least known letter of Paul. It's right before Hebrews, so if you see the big book of Hebrews, go to the left. If you're joining us for the first time, we're in a series called Rethink. Uh, We spent half a year looking at how we are called to follow, to be a disciple of Jesus, and then we're called to disciple others. We're we're called to take that which has been invested in us and pay it forward. Be one, make one. Well, what does that have to do with this letter? This letter is going to be a letter that will test the, um, the boundaries of your forgiveness. Uh, life is that. Life has a tendency to test the boundaries of your faith. And we're going to see in this little letter, this 25-verse letter, <clears throat> the testing of forgiveness. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> Philemon, not Philemon, somebody called it the beefsteak in the New Testament, it's not Philemon. It's not a. <clears throat> it's not a fraternity. It's not Philemon fraternity, right? Uh, this is one of those books. It's fun to make make some comments about the name, like the book of Hosea, right? The the Hispanic prophet of the Old Testament, right? Or the what, what was the what was the other one? Um, Malachi, the Italian prophet Malici, right? Here you got Philemon. <clears throat> not much is known. I doubt you have any notes of any sort that have been taken in this book, because I've never heard preaching on it. But for the next three weeks, you're going you're gonna to dig in, and you're going to see yourself in this little personal letter. <clears throat> I've been to Kathmandu, Nepal, on two different trips and have come face-to-face with the, a caste system where, based on Hinduism, they believe that you're reincarnated based on your fruitfulness. As we prayed earlier, you're reincarnated, and if you're unfruitful, well, you're in the lower caste, and if you're very fruitful, you're in the upper caste, the Brahmin caste. But as a Christian, when you become a Christian in India or Christian in Nepal, you're automatically dropped to the lowest caste called the untouchables, and it surely tests uh, family and friends uh, around meetings where somebody who was in a higher caste comes to Christ, somebody in a lower caste comes to Christ, and they're placed around the same table of the Lord's Supper. They're placed around the same table of Bible study, <clears throat> and they've got to see if this social experiment called Christianity works. To be equal in Christ, does it truly flesh itself out in day-to-day living. So the book of Philemon is going to point to that very scenario. If you convert to Christ, does it, should it, would it, could it (laughs) remove bigotry, racism, casteism? Is Christianity compatible with those things? No, it is not. It should remove them, but does it? Why is this little letter here? Well, This 13th letter of the 13th apostle. Did you know Paul wrote 13 letters? And did you know he's the 13th apostle? You had 12. Judas cut and run. They added a 12th to replace him. And here comes Paul. His apostleship, parallel, but not exactly like the other 12. Um, God literally knocks him off his high horse and leads him into a time of conversion. 
He gets discipled by Ananias and Peter and, and uh, uh, a number of other guys. Barnabas in particular becomes a close friend. But here he writes his 13th letter. You can't have a Romans without a Philemon. You can't have a book, 16 chapters of looking at that we are a new creature in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. We are justified not by our works, but by our faith in the grace of God. We are saved by grace through faith. And that makes us all equal in Christ. All right, Romans will say that the foot of the cross is equal. And whether you're an insider Jew or an outsider Gentile, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of salvation for all who believe, right? And yes, all of us suppress the truth of God in our unrighteousness, but in Christ we see he is our righteousness. And a foreign righteousness is imputed to you and we all stand underneath that robe of righteousness, not of our own. And so whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, barbarian or well-spoken, we are equal in Christ. See, that's, that's Romans. And Philemon is the case study of how Romans unfolds in the life of true believers. All right, so it... It is the vertical that demands the horizontal. And the vertical here is almost like the book of Job. It's like Satan's bet. Like God looks at Satan and he says, have you seen my servant Paul? And he sets up a a scenario here in real life. Let's, Let's take a wealthy Christian whose house is the church home. The church meets in his home. Let's take this wealthy Christian. Let's call him Philemon. And let's have a slave of his steal from him and run away all the way to Rome. Let's call him, um, just as a play on words, let's call him useful. The name Onesimus is the slave's name. Maybe a Greek slave name. Maybe not a, a name given to anybody outside of slavery. Useful, this is my useful slave. Let's call him useful. But because he's a runaway thief, He will be useless, and he will run all the way to Rome. And let's just, for the sake of the scenario, let's say under the providence of God that he meets Paul in his imprisonment. Random? Coincidence? Nah. Let's make it happen. And let's get Paul to lead him to Jesus and see what he does. What will this servant do, Paul? Will he use him and abuse him? Will he send him back and try to get him punished? Because, you know, in Roman culture, Philemon, the owner, has every right to kill Onesimus. Will Philemon see Onesimus no longer useless, but in Christ as a brother? Will he see him as an equal? All right, that, that's Satan's wager here. And that's what you're going to see unfold. The series title, Rethink. we got to rethink relationships in light of the gospel. We gotta rethink how we see the usefulness of people. All right, and that's a shift. Here's the main idea of Philemon. You have it in your notes there, your listening guide. If you're joining us online, you can go to the YouVersion Bible app and you can uh, see the notes there if you click on the live tab. Also on our website are the notes as well. So church website. Here's the main idea of Philemon. It's a quote from C.S. Lewis, and it says, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable. 
because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Um, To say it another way, by pardoning us, by forgiving us so radically in Christ, Jesus transforms our relationships. And it's always the great contradiction that when you see a bunch of people who are saved by grace, yet they're snooty and religious to the point of thinking they're better than anybody, that is so repulsive to the outside world. But when you see a bunch of people who've been loved by God and they have no idea why they've been forgiven the inexcusable in them and they just go to people and they don't care who you are, what you've done, they just receive you and they accept you and they have open arms for the people around them. Matter of fact, the the least likely, the more lost, uh, the better. Now that people, those people full of contagious grace, they're, they're noteworthy, amen? Am I, am I the only one seeing the power of such a, a little letter? This is a letter which tests the very fringes of what we might call social revolution. How do you, re, how do you have a revolution of social norms? Well, look at Philemon. It's a case study with the power of the Christian gospel to break down barriers among you, Jesus will, he wants to transform your relationships. And Philemon is the center line. Uh, Crazy little story. Within the last two decades in Austin, Texas, there was a a, a building, a high-rise series of apartments that was built. It was framed out, it was plumbed and everything. And they came to the place in the job where they install the granite countertops and sinks, uh, kitchen and bathroom. And they, they, they came, the, con- the subcontractor came with the granite and the pipe holes in every single apartment, the pipe holes for the kitchen and the bathroom sink did not line up. And it became a mess. It was costing money. It was causing lots of this tension because fingers started to be pointed, right? Is it the architect? Is it the contractor, a subcontractor? Whose fault is it? Finally, they discovered the problem. The center line of the building was marked one inch off true center, one inch off. The contractor explained that builders, when they built the shell, then marked the center line on the floor then everyone measures to build the interiors off of that center line, and it was off one inch. And the center line of the Christian church is the gospel of Jesus. It's a gospel of grace that you did not arrive in your faith as a believer by any work of your own. It's not because you're smart enough, good-looking enough, such a good father, such a good mother, such a good friend. It's not because of you, but because of Jesus. And that grace that builds community, that grace community is the culture here. It's the culture that we should farm. And Philemon is, in a sense, Colossians chapter five. Did you know that? Um, At the end of Colossians, another letter of Paul, a, a letter about the radical conversion of grace, that you have been transferred from one kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light. You've been reconciled, you've been redeemed. It's a litany of praises over what Jesus did, not what you did. And at the end of Colossians, it has four chapters. Colossians has four, and at the end, he tells a man by the name of Tychicus and a man by the name of Onesimus. 
to grab the letter of Colossians and bring it to the Colossian church. As Onesimus is leaving, Paul takes a little 25-verse personal note. You know, Paul also wrote Titus and he wrote Timothy. And in those notes, they're, they're written to a person, but yet they have instructions for the larger church. If you come to the deacon ordination here in a few weeks, you're going to hear us teach in 1 Timothy chapter 3. There's, there's language to the church. Philemon has no language to the larger church. This little 25 verse post note is folded over and stuck into Onesimus' pocket and it's marked confidential. Onesimus, you're to take this to your former slave owner and you're to try to make it right. I'm going to help you. And he gives him this little, you know, anytime I get a note in my office marked confidential, I kind of shudder. Either someone's going to beat me up or they're going to complain about something, right? It's for your eyes only. And And in this case, Paul is going to put down some pretty strong language of what Philemon ought to do. All right, so we're going to to see in this personal letter to an old friend, he's going to do a couple of things. As we read it, he's going to inform Philemon of Onesimus' salvation. He's going to say, your slave got saved. And secondly, he's going to say, you need to forgive him. And then third, he's going to say, I want to come visit you, Philemon. So can I come? This letter is a prime evidence of the gospel breaking down barriers. Let's look at the key verses, all right? Let's look at verses 15, 16, 17, and 18. Have you opened up your Bible? Look with me. You're meant to follow along. Don't hear it from me. Hear it from God's word. Listen to this. For perhaps he, Onesimus, was for this reason, salvation, separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever. What's that? Salvation. You have a forever brother, not just a time-bound friend or slave. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? Wow, what a, what a relationship you can have with Onesimus. If then you regard me as a partner, if you're underlining words with a pen, underline the word partner. That'll be sermon number three in this series, partnership. Regard me as a partner, accept him as a partner, as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, right, money, charge it to my account. I'll be willing to pay it. All right, so there's the the key Phrase. This is amazing. Three strong personalities, unlikely trio in the Mediterranean world. An ex-rabbi, right, Paul, turned prisoner in Rome, enemy of the state. A runaway, forlorn servant, conf- uh, confessed thief without rights who Philemon could kill on the spot and the Roman government would back him up. And then Philemon, a Gentile of wealth, who normally would have scorned the advice of a wandering Jewish teacher who's receiving what Paul says. An impossible triangle of brotherhood and love. Nevertheless, the gospel of Jesus Christ turned all three in new directions and and meshed their lives in the classic recount of reconciliation. A classic recount. Colossians chapter 3, verse 11 says this, 
a renewal of relationships in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, freeman, but Christ is all and in all. No, no, this, this gospel does change your relationships. They don't go back to the same. There's a story of a woman who testified to the transformation in her life that had resulted from her conversion. She said, I'm so glad I got religion. I have an uncle who I used to hate so much that I swore I'd never go to his funeral. Right? But now, now I'd be glad to go to his funeral any day. <laughs> maybe, maybe you need help going a little farther with certain people in your life. He wants us to become who we need to become. It's been said by Steve Brown in particular. The church is the only organization in the world where the only qualification for membership is to be unqualified. The church is not a place for people who are together, obedient, and spiritual. If you think this, then you were conned. The church of Jesus Christ is actually a place for people who are needy, afraid, confused, and quite sinful. But even more important than that, the church is a place for people who have been loved and have no idea why. Each congregation, as it were, is a local chapter of Sinners Anonymous. Love that quote. <clears throat> so we're going to talk about how grace is a grace that seeks the lost the least and seeks to invade. Now, <clears throat> a little practical advice as you read this book. I want you to read it two or three times. 25 verses. You can read it two or three times this month. A little bit of practical advice. Number one, I want you to see the Savior. See the picture of Christ as the Redeemer of lost sinners. You read in that verse, we just read it, that Paul was willing to pay the price for disobedient Onesimus. So Christ has already paid the price on the cross for his wayward children. Right? Verse 17, receive him as you would receive me. You know, I think when the Christian enters into heaven, he's not going to do it on his own merits. We believers will stand before the Father, and Christ will have to say at that moment, as every mouth is shut before the Father, he will have to say, receive her, receive him as you receive me. And this is the gospel in Philemon. Secondly, I need to talk about this real quick. See the effect of the gospel on slavery. As it were, there were 60 million slaves in the Roman world. Lots of wars, and the Greeks and the Romans would bring back slaves. If they conquered a people, they would bring them back. And it was a day-to-day -day slave trade. And it wasn't just uh, the outsiders and the, and the unintelligent. No, there were, there were doctors and so, sir, uh, social servants and people of education among these slaves. It was, it was commonplace. We need to remember that, that slavery was an accepted institution in the Roman Empire. And Paul, in his letters, had a tender interest in the slaves. Throughout his writings, he encouraged them to be the best Christians possible and to win their freedom lawfully if they could. He, he, he doesn't give a command to just stop slavery altogether, although in just a few centuries... It's Christianity that creates the social revolution that would make slavery illegal in large parts of the world. So we don't read him, Paul, specifically attacking slavery, 
because the gospel itself preached and lived out in the early church would ultimately destroy this social problem. All right, and you see that throughout many of his writings. All right, so let me give you the outline. Here's the outline of this book. We're gonna cover verses one through seven, next 20 minutes. Then we're gonna look at the pardon, your pardon, your past pardon, and how that creates gospel friendships, right? Your, your past reconciliation creates reconciliation in your relationships. The power of your past pardon to transform your relationships. The key phrase here is gonna be verse four, which says, I thank my God always for what he's done and what he's gonna do. I want you to write the word remember. That's gonna be today. He's gonna call you, he's gonna call, Paul's gonna call Philemon to remember who he is, what he has, and what Jesus has done. Next week, we're gonna look at the present intervention you can have in forgiveness. So, so we're gonna look behind for forgiveness, and then we're gonna look within. And we're gonna say, you gotta have the guts to engage others in reconciliation, and you've gotta have the guts to reconcile people in your own life. You gotta look within. And the word there is request. There is going to be an appeal, verse 10, an appeal to you. I appeal to you to forgive. And as leaders here and as people of faith, that's what we do. We have the ministry of reconciliation. And when people are at odds, we say, get right, forgive, move on, reconcile. And then three weeks from now, we'll look at future partnership. What you have when somebody comes to faith, when you're able to reconcile, man, there is power. There is a Philemon letter in your pocket for you to be a part of. Partnership and the gospel. And the word there is redeem. Recycle your pain. Redeem your pain in that bad relationship. And when God turns it good, boy, you've got a good testimony. Amen? So there we go. What a, what a great letter. Let's start in verse one. Let's look back for forgiveness. This is rethinking forgiveness in your social structures. We look back. Verse one, Paul, a prisoner. And uh, he didn't call himself in this in any other letter in the front of it. You can imagine the rhetorical power, right? The rhetoric here. I am a prisoner. Look what it costs me. And I'm, I'm telling you, Philemon, yes, receiving Onesimus is gonna cost you, but nothing like what I'm paying. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He was a prisoner of Christ, not of Rome. He's not ashamed of his chains. Matter of fact, he accomplished more from his Roman imprisonment than we do as free citizens. He says, I am a prisoner of Jesus Christ and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker. Who's Philemon? We've already covered it, right? He was a Christian. He was a wealthy Christian. He was in Colossae. He, he is... Uh, one of the main leaders of the Colossian church. His son, as we're about to read, Archippus, pastored that local church. His wife, we're about to read, was uh, the hostess of the church home. They met in a home. They met in Philemon's home. So Philemon is a wealthy Christian. A church meets in his home. His son pastors that home. He is a noble man. He has, he has a noble family. His wife is godly, his son is godly, he's godly. Philemon, we can see by verse 19, was possibly one to Christ by Paul. So Paul led Philemon to Jesus, and now he's led Onesimus to Jesus. But Paul here is writing to his, one of his converts, to Philemon, our brother, 
beloved brother, and to Aphia, our sister. Right? She was most certainly the wife of Philemon, the mother of Archippus. She would have no doubt been concerned about Onesimus. In their culture, the custom of the day was the woman was the head of the house, ran the house, and ran the slaves. So she knew Onesimus. She's the one that gave Onesimus his orders and his jobs for the day, and she would have been concerned. She had a day-to-day responsibility for slaves. Verse 2, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier. This is Philemon's son. He may, uh, as we saw at the end of the book of Colossians, he may be a mission pastor sent from Colossians area. He's about to start a church in Laodicea. Okay, so he pastored there in Colossae, and now he's about to. He hadn't gone yet, or maybe he'd made a trip or two, but he's about to go to Laodicea. Then to the church in your house. Wow, that would have put some pressure on Philemon to heed Paul's request. The the language of of the gossip might have have really stirred things up. Onesimus came to faith. Oh, and you know what it's like. When somebody really does you wrong, and it's the least likely, and they come to faith, you doubt it. You wonder about it. You gossip about it, you know? And this little letter here would have put it front and center where they couldn't have gossiped very well. Do you see how personal this letter is? It's very personal. Verse three. This is common of Paul. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Underline the word grace and underline the word peace. You're about to see about four words thrown out real fast. Here's the first two. Grace and peace. Six of Paul's letters begin like this. Remember, remember Jude? Jude did not begin like this. Jude did not write his letter like this. Paul writes his letter like this. Could you, could you use some of these in your relationships? Grace and peace. You got, you got an extra grace required person, an EGR in your life, who's like sandpaper to your soul? Could you use some grace? Do you have disturbance of the peace? Is your house a chaotic mess is your job chaos? Is your life chaos? Is it, is it a great disturbance, a great source of anxiety? Well, grace and peace. Notice the word order. Grace, then peace. Grace, right, is the source of peace. Grace is the source of peace. Peace with God is a, a judicial matter, a, a positional condition Right? And grace is its effect. That's what affects it. You have peace with God because of the grace, the gift of eternal life in Jesus, because of the gift of a righteousness not of your own, because of the gift of the imputation of your sin onto the shoulders of Jesus. Now, look at verse 4. I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers. Do you see how verse 3 and 4 go together? He praises God and then he prays. Prayer and praise go together because God's peace is your lifeline, your center line. Now, as you're writing notes, here's an application. Jesus offers you peace with God. This is the gospel. This is called grace. You may have never realized that if you're trying to live your way instead of God's way, you're in conflict with God. He created you to live for his purposes, and if you've been living in rebellion to God, that's conflict. Colossians 1, I told you this is Colossians chapter 5. Colossians 1, 21, it's on the screen. I think we have it on the screen. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. That's 
That's the used to be, hopefully. For some of you, it's the current state. You're at enmity with God. It's this lack of peace that creates alienation, causes mental hostility and evil deeds in verse 21. The symptoms of being at war with God are easy to spot. Some of you, you're at war with God and everybody can see it. You're in denial. You don't want to look in the mirror of the gospel, but you're in denial. Irritability, quick temper, insecurity, impatience, manipulation, arrogance, boasting, holding grudges, many, many other attitudes that the Bible calls, verse 21, mental hostility and evil deeds. In contrast to the effects of being reconciled to God, right, these things are to be in contrast to peace with God. Look at verse 22 on the screen. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless. I love that. That's what you were. This is what you are now. All right, so going back to Philemon, Paul had told them why he's praying. Here's why he's praying. Go back to Philemon verse five. Because I hear of your love, Philemon, I hear of your faith, which you have towards the Lord Jesus Christ. You have faith and love towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And by effect of that fountain of grace, you have love towards and faith towards your brothers, toward all the saints. Philemon's faith in Christ produced faith in his fellow saints. Since Philemon loved all the saints, surely Philemon would love who? Say it with me. Are you following? Who are we talking about here? Philemon should love Onesimus. Now in verse six, he expands on faith from verse five. He's gonna, in verse six, expand on faith and in verse seven, expand on love. Now if you're, if you're gonna circle a verse in the first seven, circle this one. I think this is the focus. Um, this is the fountain upon which forgiveness flows. Look at verse six. And I pray, here, here's my prayer, that the fellowship of your faith, can you say that phrase with me? The fellowship of your faith. Some of your versions, right, read what? Sharing, communion of your faith. Uh, the Greek word here is koinonia. It just means fellowship. And he's telling him, he says, I want you to remember. I want you to remember, Philemon, you're noble. Philemon, you're faithful. You're noble. You come from a noble family. You come from a faithful faith. You fellowship in your faith. You share. This isn't just evangelism. This is a lifestyle. This isn't just that you obey. This is that you are winsome and you bring others. You don't just keep it to yourself. You're other-centered. Now look at what he prays. I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective, powerful, dynamic, right? I pray that it would be strengthening through, now, his fellowship of faith, relationship to God, relationship to others, that fellowship of faith, that it would have a strengthening ability. How? Look at the rest. Through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. I love that focus of the letter is living out your relationship with God into your relationship with others. And if you don't, you, you don't have. 
If you have, then you will do. And he says, all that is strengthened by what you know. The knowledge of every, a remembrance of every good thing which is for you, which is in you for Christ Jesus' sake. I, I disciple a lot of young pastors through Liberty University and through our faith family, and I've told many a young pastor that when you begin preaching, don't, don't make a beeline to a bunch of do's and don'ts, commandments. They're there, right? But when you start your relationship with your fellowship of faith, your, your church, right, make a beeline for the Trinity. Make a beeline for the imputation of your sin onto the shoulders of Jesus, a transferent. Make a beeline for the imputation of salvation and righteousness from Jesus to you. Make a beeline to the incarnation that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. Preach on those things and the commandments flow from those. Preach the deeper thoughts. Preach, look at this, the knowledge of every good thing. This is my job in your life, to teach you about fiat creationism that God created with a word, a fiat, to teach you about how law and love go together. And law was never meant to save. You're not meant to save through, be saved through regulations. You're meant to be saved through grace. Law just is like a mirror that says you're messed up. And Jesus comes in and he's the one who cleans you up. Talk about such things. Talk about from eternity past to eternity present. Go from creation to the cross to the crown. Go from just how we messed it up in Adam and Eve to how Jesus cleans it up in his resurrection and his crucifixion. And the flow of relationship flows out of those things. Have you noticed that, that your Christian life is like concentric circles, like ever-growing circumference? That when you're born again and you're in a relationship with Jesus, you learn to love him and you flow in that devotion. It flows, you flow. It flows. And then pretty soon, Jesus looks at you and he says, I'm gonna enlarge your circle, your circumference, and I want, you to, I, want you, I want you to love your buddies, love your girlfriends. And that's hard work, at the, isn't it? Just hard work loving your girlfriends and your guy friends. And you're like, whoo, glad that's over. Don't have to do that again. <laughs> and then God says, wait, wait, no. Uh, let me, I want you to love your neighbors. I, I did such a great work in your life. Okay, now semester number three. Semester number four, love strangers. Semester number five, love your enemies. Semester number six, love that person who is your personal hate in your life. Ouch. But you know, those are later semester curriculums of spiritual greatness because they grow. And it is the sharing of your faith. Isn't that good? Now, verse seven, the final verse, and then I'll apply these last two verses. Verse seven expands on love. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, Philemon. He wasn't just noble. He wasn't just faithful. He was delightful. Man, I, I love your love. Because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. This is a great guy. And he is reminding him where his greatness came from. It came from God's forgiveness. His greatness, Philemon's greatness, came from God's grace. And he says, you are noble, you are faithful, you are delightful. Have you ever had one of those people show up at your doors? 
You know, you, they knock on your door, you look through the peephole, you look through the glass, and, and they're godly. They're somebody that you know, and they have that face that says, I have room in my heart for you. They have that face that says, I am here for you. I can't wait to encourage you. And you open the door, and you're just so excited to spend time with them. That's Philemon. That's a Christian. It flows like that. It flows from I have peace with God to I have the peace of God. I come with my faith. That's called faith. If you're writing notes, point number two, Jesus offers you the peace of God. You have, the, you have peace with God and you become a fountain that it flows, it overflows that fountain. It creates ripples in your relationship. Again, you can't have a Romans without a Philemon. Romans chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 shows how the rock of gospel dumps into your pond and it creates ripples. And it goes and it creates faith and love. Faith is the peace of God that you have. You don't just have peace with God, you have a flowing peace of God. The journey we call faith. The more you pray, the less you panic. The more you worship, the less you worry. You'll feel more patient and less pressured. This is the peace of God in your life. This is what we fellowship in. The Bible promises, you, Lord, give true peace to those who depend on you because they trust you, right? You probably have heard the serenity prayer, uh, which is made famous by Reinhold Niebuhr, but you may have not read the entire prayer in a long time. The first third of the prayer is often quoted and written on posters, but to experience the entirety of the prayer. I want you to read it out loud with me, all of us, to talk about the peace of God. Because this is, you have peace with God, you gotta know the gospel, you gotta know God's grace. And then you gotta know how your faith overflows. So would you stand with me? Shake off some cobwebs and read this out loud. One, two, three. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Courage to change the things I can and wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardships as the pathway to peace, taking as he did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will, that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever in the next. You can be seated. Jesus says, Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me all you who are weary and carry heavy, heavy burdens. I will give you rest, take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart and you will find peace. You will find rest for your souls. So you gotta get the right order. You have peace with God. You have the peace of God that is the overflowing fellowship of your faith and then you have an a pathway to make peace with others. And that is the pathway. Jesus shows you how to make peace with others. This is called love. Once you've made peace with God, you begin to experience the peace of God in your life and God wants you to experience the joy of being peace with other people in your life. He does this by turning you into a peacemaker. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5. All this comes from God who settled the relationship between us and him and then called us to settle our relationships with each other. This is called love. Now question, could you use more of this this fall? What does it mean to be a peacemaker? What does that mean? 
It's not avoiding conflict. It's not running from the problem or pretending it doesn't exist. It means having the guts to deal with the strained relationship. But you gotta know a few things as we conclude. Reconciliation is not the same as resolution. Reconciliation ends hostility. It doesn't mean that you've resolved all the problems in your relationship. You bury the hatchet, but not the issues. A lot of people are confused. You you can talk through more of the issues later. You can work on them. But at the point of forgiveness, right, the point of reconciliation, you, you push the envelope of your respect and your love out of, push out sarcasm and anger and push that relationship because God did it with you. You can disagree agreeably. Reconciliation focuses on the relationship. Resolution, the problem. Here's number two. There's a big difference between forgiveness and trust. That's a blank. Forgiveness is instant and free. We offer it the same way God offered it to us. He forgave us, no buts or ifs, you're free. We forgive And then we release the chokehold we have on their necks. But it doesn't mean we have to trust them. It doesn't mean we have to become their buddy or their girlfriend again. It means we can pray about them. You know, restoration is a completely different matter. It has to be earned over time. Reconciliation ought to be done at the point of you seeing them in you. That God has forgiven the the inconceivable in you. So you can forgive the inconceivable in them. Amen? Dale Carnegie tells about his visit to Yellowstone in one of his books. I'm a big Dale Carnegie fan. Old, old writer. He saw a grizzly bear. The huge animal was in the center of a clearing feeding on some discarded camp food, and Carnegie saw it for several minutes. He feared uh, that this bear would notice him, but he was feasting alone. He was all by himself, and he was focused. No other creature drew near. After a few moments, though, a skunk walked through the meadow toward the food and took his place next to the grizzly eating the food. The bear didn't object, and Carnegie knew why. The grizzly, he said, knew the high cost of getting even. When you rethink forgiveness, God doesn't get even with you. He let you off the hook by being willing to pay the price. Next week, we'll look at you paying the price of the ministry of reconciliation. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would see in the process of you working out the salvation with which you've worked in as we fellowship in our faith in other people's lives, that it would transform our community groups. It would transform our families. It would transform our community at large, our city, our state, our nation, the world, that that is social revolution. So create a big splash. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand and sing with us?